All right, good morning. Everybody okay? Good, good, good. It's good to see everybody this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Hosea. Again, I'll give you a few minutes to find it. Hosea, we're going to really kind of kicking off last week our intro to our summer in the minors. And this morning, we'll deal with that first minor prophet, Hosea. Uh, just a, a few words of announcement. I know Scott has already mentioned next Next Sunday morning, there will be no 8.30 a.m. service. Life groups will still meet, but our services will be at 9.40 and 11 next week as we have Equipped Sunday. Uh, Dr. Danny Aiken will be here preaching for us, the president of Southeastern Seminary and a dear friend. You won't want to miss that, but we will not have an 8.30 a.m. service, just 9.40 and 11. And also, just to, to make mention, and you'll see some of these cards floating around here, Equipped Sunday. May 21st, it's got a QR code on here. I don't know how that works, but I think you can do something with it, and it takes you somewhere. But it also allows you the opportunity to sign up for our Lunch and Learn. Our Lunch and Learn with Jim Shaddix will be fantastic. So just a, a big weekend next weekend as we look forward to being together. And today is Mother's Day. How about that? Y'all all did great. These are the true warriors in here. You guys got up early and got yourself dressed, and I hope it didn't take much yelling or coaxing or anything to get to church early, but we are so thankful for you. When I grew up, I was growing up in the 1980s, you know, and so my mom made me go out to, and my brother, me and my brother, we'd go out to the rose bush, and we would have to cut a rose off her rose bush and wear it on our shirt or jacket or whatever that Sunday. I felt like Mother's Day was the worst day of the year. No reason on the planet I should ever have to wear a rose, but it was a red rose if your mother's alive and a white rose if your mother's dead, right? So I thought every year the same joke would be funny, come in with a white rose, and it was never, ever funny. I thought at some point that mom would be like, oh, that's cute, go get, you know, nope, never was, uh, never worked out. Never was really funny. I'm thankful that my mother's still alive and still faithfully serving the Lord. My dad pastoring a little church in Lexington. My mom still gets up and helps lead uh, the worship. So just really thankful for a godly mother in my mother and uh, my mother-in-law and, of course, Allison. And really thankful for each and every one of you mothers here today and ladies in our life. We need you by all means. Um, today, we're going to turn our attention to Hosea. The first of the minor prophets, there was a little card we gave to you, a little half sheet of paper with some notes there. Those are kind of generic notes uh, for the summer. In other words, they're not just for this service. We'll have those every week as we go through the minor prophets to, to, to make notes on because it hits the highlights of what we will be doing. And, and uh, when we look to Hosea, I want us just to read Hosea 1.1. And then we're going to flip and read Hosea 14, verse 9. In other words, the last, the first verse of Hosea and the last verse of Hosea this morning. Not all of the prophets will work this way, um, but what I simply want us to do is give and hopefully get through uh, an overview, a general understanding of what Hosea is is preaching about, know the message of this book, and know what it teaches us today. So reading the first verse and the last verse will kind of give us some context, I think, 
for this. But the sermon will not be one of our traditional expositional sermons. We're going to look throughout the book. So be ready. Be ready as we flip through. Reading from Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Bere, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. And then reading from chapter 14, verse 9. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Let's pray together. Father, help us to know your ways this morning. We are thankful as we gather here today, particularly thankful as we recognize this Mother's Day. God, your ways are wise, and you are good to us. So help us this morning to know you, to follow you. And Father, part of knowing you and following you is us to learn who we are and what we need to do. And, and so God, knowing ourselves and knowing you is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. So God, let's, let's pray this morning that you help us to understand our necessity and need of Christ and that we can call on Christ as Savior and Lord and King. All of these things we ask, Father, in your precious name. Amen. Hosea 1.1 tells us that Hosea has a long ministry as a prophet. His ministry spanned over five kings at least and could have, have ventured even further. As it tells us back in Kings, it was a ministry of 41 years from 793 to 752 B.C. So 41 years spanning there of Jeroboam's reign and it tells us that that Hosea was ministering even before that and maybe possibly even after that. He was one of the earliest prophets. If these are his dates and these kings are reigning at this time, he's one of the earliest prophets in all of Israel. And he was a, a contemporary as we put these names together with the prophet Isaiah. Noting, as we talked about last week, there comes to be two kingdoms of, of Israel. You have the northern kingdom, which is known as Israel, which are ten tribes to the north, and the southern kingdom, which is known as Judah, which are two tribes to the south. Isaiah was a prophet to Judah during this time, the two tribes in the south, and Hosea was a prophet to Israel. Second Kings tells us that during the time of Jeroboam, the king that Hosea was prophesying with, during this time, that Israel's borders were secure, the nation had peace, there was power amongst Israel in the reign of Jeroboam, and there were outward signs of prosperity everywhere. In other words, Jeroboam secured the borders of Israel. He, he made sure his people had peace. He made sure they had everything they wanted. There was prosperity in Israel. And in some realities, that's what a king is supposed to do, right? Secure the borders, protect his people, provide for them, and bring prosperity to his people. But when we read in the book of 2 Kings giving us this hint, Chapter 14, verse 24 tells us what's most significant about Jeroboam's reign. It says, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which was his father, which he made Israel to sin. 
In other words, Jeroboam had secured the borders. He brought prosperity. He brought some safety to Israel. Yet he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he made Israel's, Israel to sin. The king Jeroboam's rejection of God and his ways would prove ultimately to be disastrous for the nation. Even when we read 2 Kings 14, it tells us that the king's sin led to the people's sin. Because the king sinned and he didn't follow after God, the people, Israel, sinned and didn't follow after the Lord. This teaches us ultimately the importance of a good and righteous king. One who you can follow, one who you can trust, one who can lead you. In fact, the fate of the kingdom, in no small part in Scripture here, depends on the faithfulness of the king. The fate of the kingdom depends on the faithfulness and righteousness of the king. And really, if I can come to, to one central point I want to bring out is, uh, here at the beginning of this is this disastrous nature of sin. And the disaster that it brings upon the people. Because after Jeroboam, let me just read to you what happened after Jeroboam. Jeroboam was succeeded by his son Zechariah. Not the prophet Zechariah, but a different one. Zechariah was murdered within six months and replaced by Shalom, who reigned for one month before he was killed by Minchum, who clung to power for ten years but was killed by Pekahiah. Then two, year, uh, then two years, Pekahiah's uh, secretary of war, his military commander, Pekah, killed him, who was then murdered by Hoshea, whose godless behavior dragged the nation all the way down to 722 B.C. and the invasion and the destruction of Israel by Assyria. See, Jeroboam's sins come in as this wicked king, and then after him, it's just one murder, one assassination, one disaster after another in leadership. Jeroboam set the pace here for Israel, welcoming in other gods, setting up altars to other gods so they wouldn't have to go to Jerusalem, doing what was evil in the sight of God, allowing this to be established, and the disastrous natures come all the way down, having reigned until about 742. BC, for the next 20 years, it is just one murder after another after another for the kings until finally the judgment of God's, God comes and he uses Assyria to punish Israel and they are ruined. In fact, in 722 BC, when Assyria comes in, the kingdom of Israel really ceases to exist. It ceases to exist. It led all the way to the destruction. And as 2 Kings 14 says, there in that sinfulness of the king led the people to be sinful and unfaithful. That's where we get to Hosea. Hosea is ministering during this time, seeing this unfaithfulness, seeing their sinfulness, seeing how they're doing what was evil in the sight of God. And Hosea is begging them really to change. The charges are throughout. Hosea chapter 4, there's no faithfulness here. Hosea again in chapter 4, they deserted the Lord. They've given to drunkenness. They're given to sexual immorality. They're not following after him. Hosea chapter 10, they're liars who only have empty words. Over and over again, the charges are laid at the people of Israel because of their unfaithfulness. Jeroboam, their leader, had led them this way, and they had followed right along with him. In fact, 
Hosea 8.14 becomes the great charge against Israel. For Israel has forgotten their maker. Forgotten their maker. They had forgotten God. They had mistaken, and here's the real danger that we see. They They had mistaken the material prosperity that they had. They had mistaken the security that had been given to them. They had mistaken that material prosperity and security and outward comforts with spiritual blessing. They had taken the success that they had and they thought this meant they're fine, they're okay. But in reality, their material blessing was only, only pointing to their spiritual poverty as they run away from God. Now, God had warned his people. He had warned his people throughout the scriptures of what happens to unfaithfulness. In in Deuteronomy, he says, Deuteronomy 8, And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve in them and worship them, I solemnly warn you, today you will perish. God had said to his people that the, the punishment for unfaithfulness will be death. The punishment for sin will be death. That's not a new warning. That's not something that had, had just popped up on this. That's not God trying to think on his feet. When it gets to Hosea, all Hosea is reminding them of is what God had said. Be faithful for he is faithful and the punishment of unfaithfulness will be death. And Israel had been unfaithful. Now out of this story of unfaithfulness, of a nation that had gone away from God and forgotten him, of had bow down to worship other gods of a nation who were, who, who were made up of liars and deceitful men and women, as Hosea says, a nation that was sexually immoral, a nation that cannot be trusted, an unfaithful nation. Out of all of this comes the personal story of Hosea. That's what we find here in chapter 1. Hosea, the prophet, his life will begin to be a picture God and his sovereignty is going to use Hosea and his life as a picture to Israel of their own unfaithfulness. So in chapter 1, it tells us when the Lord first spoke through Hosea in verse 2, he said to Hosea, go take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. In other words, he tells him, I want you to take an unfaithful wife. I want you to go and take a wife that will be unfaithful to you. Her name will be Gomer as we come to Go and take an unfaithful wife, and and, and you will have children, verse 3 tells us. And those children will become the prophecy in the names themselves. You'll take an unfaithful wife, and you'll have children. The first one will be Jezreel, which is referring back to an incident that happened in in the Bible. And it's saying that, that judgment is coming. And what happened at Jezreel was a defeat of the army of Israel, and they were scattered. And so, other words, he's saying... You, my people, will be scattered. You will be scattered. And then he said the second one, you have a, they have a second child, and Lo Ruhamah will be their name. And Lo Ruhamah means no mercy, because I will not give them any mercy. And then the third, Lo Ami, the third child will be Lo Ami. Not my people is what Lo Ami means. And so in other words, my people will be scattered, I will give them no mercy, and I will no longer claim them as my own. Through these three children born to Hosea and Gomer, the prophecy becomes clear from the Lord. He's going to use their life to prophesy to Israel themselves. You're going to have three children. They will be scattered. They will be, they will be shown no mercy, and they will not be my people. They will not be my people. When it tells us in chapter 1 
with these three children. And, and the only child we really know for sure that Gomer and Hosea had together was the first one, Jezreel. It just says that she had two more children. And what it tells us afterwards is she ran off in a life of unfaithfulness. She ran off in a life from Hosea in a life of unfaithfulness. And, and she pursued after, as the scriptures say, other lovers. And she went to others and not Hosea. And over and over again, she did this. Over and over again, she went to another. She became adulterous in every way. And what the Lord says is that is what Israel has done with me. I'm the first love. I'm the one who saved you. I'm the one who redeemed you, to called you out. But yet, you keep running off to others for love, to others for affection. I'm the faithful one, the Lord is saying. Gomer runs off from Hosea and is unfaithful, and she ends up in a life of slavery. Having sold herself so often to others, she ends up in a life of slavery. And Gomer and Hosea's relationship become a testimony, a prophecy in and of itself. Because a life of sin... A life of sin and unfaithfulness ruins everything. My friends, I want you to know that sin always leads to ruin. Oftentimes, we, we look about the rules of Scripture, and we talked about this when we went through our Ten Commandments. We look about the rules of Scripture as things God's putting in place to hold us back, right? He wants to hold us back from doing something. And, and so we look at God's rules or his commandments and we, we think he's just trying to hold something good back from us. But in reality, those rules and commandments are in place for our good and our flourishing. They're in place for our good and our flourishing. So when we break those rules and commandments that God has given for our good and our flourishing and his glory, when we break those, it always, always, always leads to disaster and ruin. It always does. Even if for a moment there's some seeming gratification in the, in the event or in the act we know that that act itself has a payment that is required and the payment for sins is death, Scripture says. It always leads to ruin and I don't have to, I don't have to teach all this. If, if, if you're here today, you've probably got a testimony about how sin in your life or someone close to you has affected everybody around you so that you have to deal with it now. And how disastrous it comes. And here's what it does. As one old saint says, you either kill sin or sin is killing you. It has this mindset to destroy. It is looking to end your good life. And it disguises itself as blessing oftentimes. Sin always leads to ruin. It led to ruin for Israel. And their spiritual status was death. It led to ruin in Hosea's marriage. It leads to ruin in Gomer's life. All of this leads to ruin because of sin. They had all rejected God. They had made a mess of things. And because of that, they deserve God's judgment. They deserve God's judgment. But what happens next in the scripture is quite amazing. What happens next in Hosea is something I believe that is amazing. And it speaks to really the fundamental heart of this book, the love of God. The love of God. The judgment because of the unfaithfulness of Gomer in chapter 2 begins to build. 
When you read chapter 2, that, <clears throat> that judgment language just gets stronger and stronger and stronger. It starts off by cutting off the other lovers. It's, then it goes into to, to Gomer herself, and it moves right along to the judgment is coming. It is coming for you. Under, under, and, and using Gomer's sin here, the Lord pronounces judgment in chapter 2 over and over again. And it's getting steadily greater and stronger. And it looks like when you get to verse 13, it looks like the next thing the Lord's going to say. Like you're waiting on that next thing the Lord's going to say. And the next thing the Lord's going to say, and I put them to death. Like the judgment keeps getting greater and death is the next thing. Then you get Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. And Hosea 2, 14 through 16 really changes everything. It really changes everything. Right up to this point, the Lord's judgment is getting worse and worse, seemingly leading to a final indictment that will be carried out, which is death. But instead, the Lord will woo his people back. Now, Woo is a word we don't use every day, right? I remember when I first learned about the word woo, Ernest T. Bass. Season 3, episode 31 of the Andy Griffith Show. Was trying to, it's the mountain wedding episode if you're looking it up that way. Trying to win over Charlene Darling. And he shows up with his little can to sing a song. And he says, Charlene, I've come to woo you. And you know what woo means. He's trying to win her over. To woo is to express your love for someone, especially when that someone is unaware of your love. And, and maybe even when they're obstinate against your love. So you're trying to win them over with your love. And so here in Hosea chapter 2, you have the Lord pronouncing judgment against the unfaithfulness of Gomer as a picture for all of Israel. He's pronouncing this judgment over and over again to the point where you think it's time. He's going to say, it's over. We're done. And instead, he says, no, I'm going to bring you back. In fact, it tells us in verse 1, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. What a flip. He goes from pronouncing judgment after judgment after judgment because of sin to then saying, now I'm going to bring you back to me. I'm going to speak tenderly. I'm going to take you out into the wilderness. I'm going to lay this picnic out before you. It says I'm going to spread out the vineyards here for you. I'm going to bring you back out here into the wilderness, lay this picnic out. I'm going to speak tenderly to you, almost the idea of singing to you, lure you back with flowers and singing. The Lord says, that's what I'm going to do. And he says this interesting thing here. He says, there I will, verse 15, I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Now, I think it's important we understand what he means when he says valley of Achor, a door of hope. In Joshua chapter 7, in Joshua chapter 7, we find this valley of Achor there. If you remember, whenever Israel fought against Jericho, they go into the land and they won. And the Lord said, don't take anything from Jericho. Jericho was a rich city, had gold, had silver. But the Lord says, I'm going to take care of you. You don't need the gold and silver of Jericho, basically. And so they go into Jericho and they win. 
The next battle is a little town. Jericho, big, mighty, fortress city. They whip them. They go into the next little town, Ai, just in outskirts of, of Jericho. And so there they go to Ai, and at Ai, they experience great loss. Many people die. Almost looks like Ai defeats them. Finally, Joshua has to come back, and they rally the troops, and they, they win the victory, but at great, great cost. And Joshua's pleading with the Lord, and he says, Lord, what is this? What happened? They lost no one at Jericho, and now great loss at Ai. What is it, Lord? What did we do wrong here? And the Lord says, there's sin in your camp. And he goes to Achan, A-C-H-A-N. He goes to Achan's tent. And in Achan's tent, they pull back the rug underneath and they find underneath the rug, Achan had buried bars of gold and silver. <clears throat> he had done what the Lord said not to do, which again is an act of, of disbelief, unbelief. The Lord will take care of you. You don't need gold and silver. And so Achan had, had shown this, and he says this great act of unbelief. And because of his sin, it brought disaster on the whole nation of Israel. And so what happens is they said, take Achan, take his family, take all of his stuff, and head out. Head outside the camp. And it tells us, chapter 7, verse 24, Joshua and all of Israel's with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and his donkeys and his sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. All of Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over them a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Now, ultimately we see sin of Achan brought disaster to the people. And that disaster did not just equal Achan. It was his family. It was everyone around him. It was everything he touched that brought disaster and judgment of God came. And that judgment, whether we like it or not, was just because they had acted against the commands of God. And to act against the commands of God means death. We know this from a little age, for the wages of sin is death. And so they had acted against the commands of God, and there they faced the judgment in the valley of Achor. And the valley of Achor means trouble. And so seemingly this is right because here, here the Lord says, I'm going to bring you back out to Achor. I'm going to take you back out there and I'm going to, instead of this time bringing punishment to you, bringing judgment to you, I'm going to bring you back to myself. In other words, the Lord is saying, I'm going to redeem the valley of Achor and what was once trouble because of your sin is now hope. What's once trouble is now hope. The valley of Achor, which means trouble, now, because of, because of what God is going to do, he's going to bring hope to them. They brought trouble on themselves because of their sinfulness, and they would get what they deserved, judgment. But in Hosea, the people deserved judgment because of their trouble. And the Lord will take them again to the valley of Achor. But this time, he will make the valley of Achor a door of hope, it says. Instead of trouble, hope. Instead of judgment, grace. This is seen most clearly in chapter 3. The commentator, pastor, 
who's dead now, but James Montgomery Boyce calls Hosea 3 the greatest chapter in the Bible. Going back to Hosea and Gomer, the Lord says again to Hosea, go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. In Hosea 3, Gomer had run off so much she was in slavery and they were putting her up on the auction block. In other words, nobody wanted her anymore. And the Lord says to, to Hosea, you go and you buy her back. You pay what's needed to get your wife back. You don't leave her there. You bring her back. In Hosea 3, that's exactly what we see. Hosea goes and he offers up a payment for his wife, redeeming her and bringing her back. It would have been fine for him because of the sin just to leave her to it. But no, he goes and he redeems her and brings her back. Purchase her back to himself. And here in that picture is the amazing love of God on display. And when I say amazing love of God, I'm speaking of the amazing redemptive love of God. Understand, when we talk about love, we're oftentimes talking about participatory love, right? When we love something, we take part in it. We do it. I love cheeseburgers, so I eat them. Y'all see how that works? We use love as a word to participate in. That's what we do. We participate together in this. But when the Lord uses the word love, quite often and most frequently, it's used in redemptive ways. We don't have that power. The Lord has that power. He can take what has turned away from him, what has gone rotten, what has gone sour. He can take that and make it perfect again. He can redeem it because of his love. And here's what he says. I'm going to take Take you, uh, Gomer, as my bride and redeem you again to make you my bride and to love you and show you what, what I am and who I am. If you go back to chapter 1, verses 10 through 11, it says, Yet the number of children, after pronouncing these judgments with these three names, he says, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea. While it seemed like the Lord was going to cut Israel off and it's over, he says, no, I'm going to keep my promises. And just like he told Abraham, the number of the children will be like the sand of the sea for sure, which cannot be measured or numbered. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one Head and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. In other words, I'm going to take what was the scatter and I'm going to bring it back together again. I'm going to take what was lost and I'm going to find it again. I'm going to redeem it again. And all of this points to this, this one person that's going to be gathered together. It says, They shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head. In other words, it's looking to this one guy. You've had all these other kings and they have been unfaithful. You've had all these other leaders and they have not served you well. They've led you into disaster. But there's coming a day where there'll be one that will come for you again. And this one will redeem you. This one will call you back. This one will take what was lost and he will find it again. He will take the disaster that was made because of your sin and he will make it all right. 
A true and faithful king will come and redeem an unfaithful people. No wicked king at all, a godly king will come on your behalf and he will adopt the unwanted children back into his family and he will prove that they were wanted always, forever. Peter says exactly what happened here. When Peter's writing in 1 Peter, he speaks of what Christ has done for us on the cross in the word. And he says to them, now because of what Christ has done, verse 9 of chapter 1, or chapter 2, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. In other words, you will no longer be scattered. You'll be brought together. You'll no longer have no voice. You will have one voice. And that one voice will proclaim the excellent love of the Savior that has redeemed you. You'll be welcomed back in. But notice what he says in verse 10. Once you were not a people... Referring directly back to Hosea. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you, were, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Reversing the prophecy of Hosea that they would be scattered, they would not be my people, and they would have no mercy. Reversing that, this one true and great king has come so that we can be welcomed back together again as his people who have been adopted into his family and we know the great and glorious mercy of God. Hosea is pointing us to this true and faithful, loving king who will make everything wrong right again. This is all pointing to Christ. That's why James Montgomery Boyce says Hosea chapter 3 is the greatest chapter in the Bible. It's a picture of the redemptive love of Christ. You see, God's love is great and amazing, not because of how many people he loves. It's not the quantity the fact that God loves everybody is not a mystery to us and not hard for him. He created us all. God's love is amazing because of the type of people he loves, the quality. For all we have, sheep have gone astray. All of us have turned our own way. All of us have rejected him through our own sinfulness. All of us have, have, have pursued after other lovers, as they said. If I can just for a moment get you to understand this, and I don't mean this in any way scandalous whatsoever, but in this story, we are Gomer. In this story, we are the unfaithful ones. In fact, James says it like this. James calls those who turn to others, those who reject God, you adulterous people, he says. The scriptures make this clear that when we turn away from God, we're committing adultery on the first love, the one who made us and created us. And here Jesus is the redeemer. He's the Hosea. He's the one that says, I want that one when nobody else wants them. I'll buy them back with my life. The amazing love of God is seen in the fact that God not only sent the true faithful king opposite of Jeroboam and the rest. He sent the true and faithful king to lead his people in righteousness and to redeem them through his love. And now God is wooing his children back again. 
He's wooing us back again. And he's not wooing us with with flowers and singing, although that would be fine. He's wooing us with something far greater. He's wooing us with the inexpressible, incomprehensible love of a Savior who came for us. Let me show you what I've done. Come back to us. And in this, it leads to these two pleas that are so clear in Hosea. Hosea 6, 1 through 3, is Hosea pleading with his own people. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He struck us down. He will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. Does that language sound familiar to you? Come, let us return to the one. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord for his going out as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. The assurance that we can have that the Lord loves us and will come for us is as sure as the fact that the sun comes up every morning and the rains come down and water the earth. Come, let us return, Hosea says. And then in Hosea 14, the whole chapter is the Lord pleading with them. Do not stay in your sins. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls and the vows of lips and all this other. He's saying, return, return. And the Lord finally says, I'm the one who will pay for you. All you have to do is come to me. Do we understand that everything required for salvation has already been paid for us in Christ? All we have to do, as it says, is return to him. Return to him. He calls them to repent. Repentance means that we have sorrow for our sins and we confess them, recognizing that we are sinners. Repentance means that not only do we have sorrow and confess, we know judgment is coming, and rightfully so, because of our sins. Repentance means not only that we have sorrow and confess our sins, and we know that rightfully judgment stands on us, it also means that we turn to one who is greater than all of our sins. We turn away from our sin and we turn toward Christ and we turn toward him. And what Hosea does here is he pleads with the people, here is the great and glorious love of God. Do not forsake it. Do not turn away from God's love. Turn to it and turn away from your sins. And that message, my friends, is just as true for us today as it ever been. In fact, it's even greater and more true for us today than it was for Hosea and his people. Because we don't live in light of the promise that sins were coming. We live in light of the fact that Christ Jesus has come and he has died in our place and he has risen again and his going out is as sure as the sun and anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And though we were lost and undone, unwanted and turned from him, he has redeemed us by his love. The call is to repentance. Turn back to the Lord. For sin leads you to disaster. But God's grace brings you hope. He has turned our trouble into hope.
Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Christ and what Christ Jesus has done for us. This message of Hosea that points us to the redeeming love of a Savior. God, may we, as your people, confess our sins and turn to you, our Savior. Greater love we have never seen than this, that Christ Jesus laid down his life for us. So God, I pray. Even now, as you work in hearts and lives in this room, God, I pray that there will be people here today by your spirit, because of the great love in which you loved us, they would turn from their sin. They would see it for what it is and feel sorrow for it. Even the disaster that their sin may have brought in their life and family, Father, God, they don't have to stay there in it they would turn from it and turn toward Christ.